Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 38 through verse 50, the end of chapter 9. Mark 9, beginning in verse 38, once again, God's holy and inspired word. God's word. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. Actions have consequences. Now, like the law of gravity, we instinctually know this to be true. This is just essential common sense. Though, as you know, common sense is not always very common. Thus, we as humans regularly try to avoid the consequences of actions. We are lazy, but we still hope to get paid. People break laws certain that they will not get caught. You get a speeding ticket and you blame the cop? Others will spit out cruel words as if they do no harm. And what complicates this is that often enough actions and consequences don't match. An evil deed doesn't get punished while good work receives nothing in return. And this only encourages people and us to act as if there are no consequences. Well, our Lord wants to correct such thinking, particularly with respect to our faith, and to highlight that the primary consequences that we should be concerned about are not found in this life, but in the eternity beyond. So we pick up here with Jesus in mid-lesson, The teaching session that he began in verse 33 continues through verse 50. And this lecture of our Lord began with the disciples competing to be the best. They were striving to see who was number one, vying for the most honor and prestige. Thus Jesus corrected them that the way of the disciple is to be the last servant of all. He abolished the game of competitive piety an ambition for honor, and replaced it with humble service of others as your betters. 
And as an example of this, he called them to receive a child, to show hospitality to one who can give you nothing in return. That is, we serve others for no earthly reward or benefit. Instead, the blessing for lowly service is spiritual. To receive the child in Christ's name is to host Jesus himself and even the Father who sent him. Well, our Lord is still talking about this topic. They're in the same room, and the child yet sits on our Lord's lap. When there is an interruption, the teacher gets cut off by the student. John butts in with what at first seems to be like an off-the-wall remark. Hey, teacher, we saw some guy casting out demons in your name, and we put a stop to him, for he was not following us. Yet why does John intrude with this comment? Well, to cast out demons in the name of Christ does look like magic, especially if the guy's not a disciple. In fact, pagan magicians would scrounge up all sorts of names that they hoped had power. We actually have magical incantation text where Jesus' name is listed with the names of other gods and spirits. Therefore, John is bragging that he's been a good boy. He's asserting how they have performed well for Jesus. And yet there's an irony here. This guy actually banished demons in the name. He was successful in his exorcisms. But right before this, the disciples were useless against the mute demon and the little boy. The nine failed against demons, but this guy was victorious. Next, the disciples stop him with authoritative commands. They order him to cease and desist. They flex their police muscles of being in charge. If someone beats you in a race or in a game... One way you can still win is to disqualify them on a technicality, which is what the disciples do here. Finally, John grounds their arrest of this guy in the fact that he was not following us. He says us, not Jesus. The correct idiom for a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. But John says us to make themselves the standard for discipleship. They are the model and pattern to conform to. And if the disciples are the rule, then they can judge who is in and who is out, like this guy. Therefore, John's interruption here asserts that the disciples are still competing and vying for the glory of high office, for the honor of authority. Our Lord's teaching about non-competitive service went in one ear and out the other. Even more crazy is that Jesus said to be the last servant of all, and John brags that they are so good at authoritative power. We can't be servants, for we excel at leadership, at issuing rules and commands. The slowness of the disciples make a snail look fast. Our Lord, though, remains the patient teacher with them. He gently yet firmly corrects them. First, he calls their forbidding the guy as wrong. He says, do not order him to stop. This is bad use of authority. 
Next, he explains, if someone performs a mighty deed in my name, they will soon be no longer able to speak evil of me. The guy may have started out opposing Jesus, but success in the name will make him a friend. Remember with the mute demon, Jesus said the disciples failed for lack of prayer and faith. Well, if this guy succeeded in kicking out demons, then he must have a seed of prayerful faith. And faith in the name of Christ leads one to Christ. Correct trust in the name flowers into conversion. This guy may have been rough around the edges, but his faith was on the way. To forbid him lays a barrier across the path of his faith. Finally, Jesus states that the one who is not against us is for us. Now, in terms of demons, there are only two sides. The evil one will not divide his own kingdom by making war on his own minions. And so there is no neutral ground in such spiritual warfare. If this guy is defeating demons, then he's not a foe to Jesus or the disciples, but he's an ally. The point being, do not treat as a foe one who's helping you. This guy might be a little messed up. He might not have all his ducks in a row, but recruit him as a friend before you demonize him as an enemy. The competitive piety displayed by John is quick to make foes, quick to draw lines of disunity, but servant discipleship humbly invites to be a friend. It welcomes the imperfect baby steps of faith to lead them to Christ and to strengthen their faith. The issue, then, of seeking honor versus being the last-place servant is still the topic on the table. Thus, our Lord continues to develop the subject. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water in my name will not lose his reward. Now, giving a sip of water was proverbial for the smallest and cheapest expression of charity and kindness. You had nothing to share, but you could at least offer a cup of H2O. This is the lowest form of hospitality, and yet to the thirsty, the drink was a delightful relief for their parched throat. Furthermore, this puny act of kindness is performed here explicitly in Christ. It is done in the, uh, his name to those who belong to Christ. Therefore, this is not neighborly charity. It isn't repaying the evil of an enemy with good. These are both good and necessary, but they're not in view here. Rather, this is Christian charity for another saint flowing from faith in Jesus. And so this is the smallest bit of help done in faith to fellow believers. And in context, this covers the guy banishing demons. In verse 41, the cup is given in the name, just as the guy cast out demons in the name. As well as his taking down of demons was a help to the disciples. It was him playing on the same team. The disciples may have considered this guy's kindness 
like a pathetic sip of H2O, and so they ordered him to stop. If you cannot help us greatly, then don't bother at all. Our Lord, though, doesn't despise the small act of faith. As he says, he will by no means lose his reward. That is, God will surely be pleased and reward the itsy-bitsy act of kind faith. And by sure reward, Jesus is thinking of heaven. He has in mind spiritual blessings, just as he did in verse 37, by receiving him and his father. There's no earthly rewards or repayments per se, but spiritually, the Lord is pleased and blesses the kindness of faith. The believing cup of water will get no honor from this world. Here and now, it wins no awards. But as it's done in faith, and as the last servant of all, the Father is pleased and will reward it with the everlasting glory of heaven. This act of faith has little to no earthly consequences, but it certainly has spiritual and heavenly consequences. Like the disciples, our tendency is to think that those who do things or our tendency is to do those things that will only give us good consequences here and now in the present. We despise small kindnesses that don't seem to benefit us. But our Lord is training us not to be so earthly-minded. He wants us to set our minds on the spiritual realms of the age to come. Being the last servant has no earthly reward per se. But the Father delights in such kind faith and keeps for it everlasting rewards. And the fact that Jesus is thinking of heaven here is made evident in what he says next. If a believing cup of water is blessed with heaven, so to scorn this act of faith has lasting consequences in the deep dark below Our Lord makes his point by lining up a bunch of things in parallel. In verse 42, the little one who believes in me aligns with the sip of water done in faith. But now the positive is changed to a negative. Now this this small act of faith is tripped up. It is caused to fall into sin. To trip up a small believer, then, is not to make them sin, per se, in a general way. No, to stumble faith is to destroy faith. It is to despise the small believer so that they believe no longer. It is effectually what the disciples did to the guy. They uh, forbade him from using the name of Jesus and said that he was not one of them, which is kind of a type of excommunication. They judged his small faith as no good and shoved him outside. This is tripping up faith for good. And the consequence for toppling a small believer is horrendous. Jesus says it would be better for him to wear a massive stone necklace and drown at sea. And yet what Jesus says here strictly doesn't make sense. To say better means the punishment for tripping up faith is worse than being drowned at sea. 
The problem with this is that there is nothing worse than this death. To be tied to a monolith and tossed overboard was the most horrific penalty for the most atrocious sin in the ancient world. This was punishment both in this life and in the afterlife. For death at sea meant non-burial, and with no proper burial, your spirit was thought to be cursed to wander the chaotic deep forever. This, then, is a picture of hell. So Jesus says, better here, ironically, to express the eternal penalty for destroying the faith of little believers. If you trip up faith, it's better for you to suffer the worst everlasting punishment. This is a strong warning to express that there is nothing that the Father hates more than those who destroy the faith of his little ones. And this is made clear as drowning at sea is put in parallel to being cast into hell in the next three verses. Note the sin remains the same, causing to sin or tripping up faith, It's just now Jesus switches from harming the faith of others to what destroys your own faith. The wages for destroying the faith of another is everlasting death. And so the penalty for letting your own faith fall into ruin is everlasting flame, the flames of hell. And Jesus drives this point home with three or three times. He says, if your foot, if your hand, or if your eye trips you up, then start maiming. Grab the axe and chop off the the faith-offending extremity. Get the spoon and scoop out the unbelieving eye. For it's better for you to enter everlasting life uh, in the kingdom maimed and deformed than to suffer the fires of Gehenna uh, uh, whole. And yet by this warning, note that Jesus is still contrasting earthly versus everlasting consequences. Now clearly on the literal level, Jesus is exaggerating here. He's not calling us to literal amputation. For one, hacking off a limb won't actually stop sin. You can lust with one eye just as well as with two Such drastic self-denial isn't ultimately effective against sin. Rather, sawing off your hand or foot is a vivid picture for forsaking what is of earthly value. We value our earthly body parts above all else. But if what we value the most ruins our faith, then we should get rid of it. It's better to lose what we prize most now to gain the blissful life of the kingdom. These body parts then stand for any obstacle to true faith. Hewing off the faith-destroying foot is another way of saying we forsake all things to cling to Christ in faith. It's our Lord's way to drive home that our faith in Christ, or lack thereof, has eternal consequences. This is Jesus waking up his disciples and us to forget about earthly benefits. They were competing for honor now. They patted themselves on the back 
for stopping the guy for doing wonders in the name of Christ. This kind of piety, though, tends to reject little believers. It focuses on earthly prophets of faith while giving little thought to eternity. The last of all servant, though, gives no mind to earthly returns. Such little faith sacrifices worldly treasures to remove all stumbling blocks. Therefore, Jesus solemnly warns the disciples that their competitive piety can destroy faith. And without faith, the penalty is the everlasting fire of hell. The wages for destroying faith is eternal death and eternal death where fire never wanes and the maggots never die. Our Lord is correct or connecting for us being a servant of all with our faith in him and our being mindful of not earthly returns but the everlasting reward of the Father. The way we serve our fellow believers or fail to do so has a direct effect on our faith with eternal consequences. Thus, he ties up this point now by reaching for the salt shaker. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, this is kind of an abrupt head-scratcher, which is what Jesus intended. First of all, salting and fire is a unique and weird image, and such a strange image is meant to make you think. Second, after all the parallels about the fires of hell, fire evokes wrath and punishment. Salting, though, is typically an act of improvement. In the Old Testament, this act of salting shows up in only two places. In Leviticus 2, you had to salt the sacrifices to make them acceptable. And in Ezekiel 16, a newborn baby was salted to cleanse it. To be salted with fire, then, points in the direction of sanctification by suffering or purification by service. Also, to say everyone will be salted with fire, this has the force of either you're salted now for life or you're salted later in Gehenna for punishment. Yet Jesus is focusing on our present need for salting. As he says, salt is good. Salt's a necessity of life. Without salt, food doesn't taste very good. Eating meals without salt kills the joy out of the meal. However, if salt is unsalty, it's useless. Now, verse 50 should be read as, If salt is unsalty, what with what will you season it with? That is, Jesus isn't making a scientific statement that salt can become unsalty or that you can make salt salty again. No, a simple point is that if you have something that looks like salt, but it doesn't taste salty, then it's useless. You won't use it. A salt that does not season is worthless. Thus, Jesus calls us to have salt in ourselves. He says, be salty, my friends. Now, today, a salty person is an angry and irritated one. Salty is overconfidence with dogmatic opinions that divide and step on toes. 
But this is not how our Lord means it. This saltiness is positive. It's good. Now, salt had a multitude of uses in the ancient world, but one of the most common was at the dinner table. As Job said, can what is tasteless be eaten without salt? Well, of course not. The salt was the seasoning of hospitality. It was the flavor of fellowship and community around the table. Salt preserved the meat and it made the vegetables edible. Thus, Jesus calls us to have salt in ourselves and to be at peace with one another, which takes us back to the hospitality as servants of all. A salt that brings peace at dinner is the opposite of competitive piety that ranks others and squabbles. Peaceful salting washes the feet of a child. It does not despise the cup of water from a little believer. Rather, forsaking earthly honors and rewards, salting serves the others as your better. It removes any obstacles of faith to make fellowship, the fellowship of faith, salt tasty. This saltiness denies yourself to purify faith, and it seasons you as a living sacrifice to be pleasing to the Lord. This salt strengthens faith now so that it will never feel, feel the fires of hell but will enter the kingdom of life. John interrupted our Lord here, bragging how he forbade the little faith of the guy and how good they were at leadership with authority. And so Jesus responded that we must remove all obstacles for our faith. For ourselves and for little believers, the smallness of faith cannot be tripped up. For the everlasting maggots are the wages of no faith. Instead, Jesus calls us to the salty service of others that purifies faith and makes brotherly peace in the church delicious. Of course, being salted with fire as a sacrifice is ultimately what Jesus did to save us from the fiery maggots of Gehenna. The humble service that, that builds faith is first the service of Christ on the cross that creates faith in us. For on the cross, Jesus tasted the fires of hell so that you do not have to. He served for no earthly benefit so that we might have the everlasting reward in and with him. Thus our salty service is done not to earn heaven, but it's done in response that Jesus has already earned the kingdom and heaven for us. Indeed, as he said, the, the smallest expression of faith, even giving a sip of water, done in the name of Jesus, will by no means lose the reward of Christ. A little faith will not lose its reward, because that little faith clings to Christ, who will earn that reward for us, all of grace. Thus, may we magnify the sacrifice of Christ, salted with his righteousness for us. 
And then in him, may we love and serve with the salt of the gospel, each other, and serve in a way that brings peace to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, may we serve not to compete, but to bring peace and faith among us for his glory. Amen.